Uh, there we are. Is that better, everyone? <laughs> Marvellous. Oh, my goodness. I know what. I need to, I need to make the, the bingo, the, the rail letter bingo come back. Oh, dear. I'm so sorry, everyone. What a mess. Anyway, I have beer, which makes me happy. You missed, everyone missed hearing me um, uh, over pour and, and do a bad job of pouring my beer and it spilled everywhere. Anyway, we're here to talk about the permanence of the permanent way and why people prefer trams to buses. For those of you who are new viewers to this episode, um, uh, welcome, to, <laughs> welcome to how these sorts of things work. Um, before uh, Kevin's here and laughing because uh, returning champion Kevin Tennant is here, Dr. Kevin Tennant. We'll do a proper introduction to Kevin after the news. Um, but, uh, but let's do the news. Uh, for goodness sake, let's get on with things. Um, so cracking on with, the, with various bits of new news. Um, Portishead, a dummy no more. Uh, yes, well, Portishead's little railway bit has allegedly got the go-ahead for £152 million worth of new railway. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what that's paying for because it's an enormous amount of money. But in any case, that's how much money has been put aside. I have to dig into what the engineering is to see how on earth they're justifying that cost. But that's how much it's costing. I bet it's signaling connections that's costing that much. But anyway, a new bit of railway connecting up to Portishead along with a new service. Um, interesting. West of England Combined Authority is, is giving a lot of cash to this. But yes, at last, this has been bouncing around for years. And finally, it seems to have got the go ahead, which is sort of the first in a, in a, in a variety of bits and pieces for what's called Metro West, which is going to be a bit of um, some, some kind of railway connections across uh, Bristol and, and the wider area. So this is good news. Um, what else? Oh, yeah. Just hot off the press, in fact, is that Ian Stewart is, um, has been elected as the chair of the Transport Committee. Um, I don't know if you saw this, Kev. Uh, yeah, I know. This is good news. Well, so Hugh has been Hugh Merriman has been moved on, but he's been moved into the rail minister role, which which is probably a good role because he feels quite strongly about all the stuff that he put his name against as the transport select committee chair. So he might get on that. Equally, you might argue that it was a, a chance to get him within the camp and then therefore get him to stop pestering them because he was doing quite a good job of pestering them. So, um, yeah, in any case, Hugh is there, which is maybe a shame. Because Hugh was actually a good chair, Ian Stewart is replacing him, and uh, Ian is is. I, I, I did the quick classic uh, search the Twitter timeline to see what their stance is on HS two, and um, generally positive. Um, it's, it's, well, he likes narrow gauge. You know that he then. does like narrow gauge. That's Ian Stewart getting excited about the um, Linton Barnstable railway up on Exmoor, which is nice. Seems um, seems so. Yeah. So so there we go. So that's that's possibly not a bad sign. Uh, we'll see. So anyway, we, we we stand to see what that what happens there. It's um, uh, go on, Kevin. What 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 are your thoughts? Sorry. Yeah, no, I think it's it seems 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 positive. If this is, is just depends where the treasury stands still, I guess. And the sort of bigger. Indeed, the and, bigger and, picture uh, around HST, right? Yeah, I was mildly reassured by Ian Stewart's general thoughts on things as well because, um, uh, where is it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, what was interesting is Ian Stewart, out to back, back in 2013, was out to back on government's anti-homophobic bullying initiatives. So that's a, uh, okay. So maybe not a, one of the new vampiric uh, Tories. So that's a, that's a good sign. Anyway, uh, MK, uh, Milton Keynes MP uh, now taking over. Uh, moving on, uh, Andrew Gilgan's at it again. I'm not going to give this much attention because he just wants attention. That's all he's out. Well, he's out for a variety of things. But attention certainly <laughs> one of them. Um, he was there screenshotting me and then and then uh, rather than quote tweeting, he didn't set his, any of his uh, tweets about this to having the replies on. So um, the man's a coward, but he's also just fluffing nonsense. Now he's been kicked off, uh, kicked, you know, kind of dumped from government because he was 
chums with Boris. Um, he's now written his. He's tried. He tried his hardest in government to kill off HS2, and half succeeded, but did not completely succeed because he only managed to kill it off to Leeds. He hates high speed rail. He hates anything good. Um, a lot of his. You could argue that a lot of his cycling stuff, which is positive, but mm, you could argue the way that he was pushing it forward was in as, in as, as vigorous a way possible to create the largest opposition to it. Um, but in any case, a stopwatch uh, is correct twice a day etc anyway this this report for those of you asking if i can do a page turn of it i'm not sure i will because i don't think it deserves the attention it's just hopeless from start to finish um anyway uh, let's move on from that uh interestingly this little um this little poll popped up um just briefly uh, wow. today uh indicating general support of hs2 um so from everyone under the age of 50 supports hs2 and everyone over the age of 50 does not support it with pretty substantial 40 percent um, net opposition against, uh, you know, opposition to HS2 for the 65 pluses. So once again, on average, the older generation doesn't want anything nice for the younger generation. Um, make of that what you will. Oh, uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, so that's all, all, all good fun and games. Um, the last thing which uh, I'm going to have to do is, I bet this is in the wrong window. I'm going to go big face momentarily and say, hello everyone, this is big face, only so I can do some rapid... Oh good, I hadn't put it in the wrong place, fine. Uh, just checking the technology, hello everyone. Look, uh, don't look at me again because I've gone. Uh, it's fine. The next... <laughs> okay, crikey. Um, the next and last bit of news is really not really news at all. It's ouch time tomorrow. So tomorrow is the autumn statement uh, and it potentially is going to be a horror show. So we've got that to look forward to. Um... Barry Jones, don't be offended. The average does not mean you personally are responsible for the views of your generation, but the views of the generation are pretty clear cut. Um, well, we know you're uh, we know you're quite enlightened, Barry. So. This is it. But I was going to say, Kev, you know about uh, yeah. you know Barry Jones <laughs> often in the chat. Hello, Barry. Always good to see. You. Hi, Barry. <laughs> uh, we're, we're not counting you in amongst it, but that is the average view of of, of the older generation. I'm afraid to say. Anyway. Um, <laughs> right, let's get on with it before we before we piss Barry off anymore. Sorry, Barry. Um, you don't know the yeah, I know. It's, it's, we're, we're shouting. Out. Anyway, yes. Um, <clears throat> just once, uh, Tatos ninety three says, "Just once, I'd like a tree planted to shade under." Uh, yes, indeed. Right, <laughs> let's get on with things. Everyone, welcome to tonight's Rail Matter. <laughs> So last time you were on, Kevin, we were talking about yeah. Pacers, which is quite nice because this is episode 140, which is, of course, <laughs> the, the, the number of the prototype. That was not planned, but it's ended up working out that way. So that's quite good. Good coincidence. Good coincidence. Yeah, if only yeah. I'd managed to do it as, as, as if only it'd been next week, then we'd have we'd have literally been the, the you know, the, the, the first operational Pacer. As the, but anyway, 140, <laughs> the, the prototype Pacer. Um, yes, so that was last time, and if anyone, uh, for anyone who has not um, watched that episode, hello, we've, we'll get Kevin uh, up in the corner. For anyone who's not watched that episode, I could, cannot recommend it enough. It's good fun. It bursts. It's a good. It's not just about myth busting for pacers. It's about broader attitudes to myth busting on the railways because there are an awful lot of oft repeated myths that we need to do our very best to to kind of unbust. Um, so. Oh, I've uh, also, for everyone's interest, uh, I absolutely wrecked my spine somehow between um, 
arriving in the house and sitting in this chair. So I've done a proper old man thing where I really am like, oh, I cannot <laughs> rotate properly. So anyway, all good fun. Um, <laughs> for starters, before we do any more of this sort of thing, because we are indeed going to be here talking about uh, buses, trolley buses and trams, the full works here. Before we do any of that, though, um, Kevin, welcome back to the show. Yeah. Uh, returning champion. It's lovely Hi. to have you back. Um, yeah, thanks for having me back as a as a returning champion. Yeah, <laughs> that's it, absolutely. Um, so for anyone who's not um uh, who hasn't uh, met Kevin before, or is not familiar with Kevin's output on Twitter or, <laughs> or or journals, Kevin, do you want to do a quick introduction so to bring people up to speed with um, with where what what you get up to in your day day to day life? Well, yes, I'm a reader now, actually in uh, management. Uh, yeah, the University of York is my kind of day job and. Um, I've just kind of come through <laughs> basically two or three years of helping the university get through the pandemic. Um, yeah. So I haven't done that much research recently, but we're kind of getting back to things properly. And one of the big areas of research that I looked at before the pandemic really, and sort of again now, is um, transport in different ways. So I actually started in this area, well, I was lucky enough to have Terry Gervish as my supervisor. Yes. One of my vacations, <laughs> a long time ago. So that that kind of helps. But yeah, I kind of, um, I kind of thought that an area that you know we know a lot about mainline railways. So it turns out not as much as we think, as we thought we did, right? But <laughs> yeah, I got into this area through tramways and having an interest in how so so how the tramways kind of operated as a business. How did that work? And that kind of led me into this whole area of kind of municipal socialism, trading or capitalism as it can be variously defined. And that's yeah. kind of, and that, that kind of then led into other directions, if you like. So I, I'd looked and I published a paper about tramways in York about five years ago now, six years ago. And then I did some work with David Turner on London as well. Um, and we, yeah, so, but one of the things that we were quite interested in and that I'm still trying to develop out of that is this sense that transport in Britain was always a kind of a business, really. Yes. So even when it's socialised, it kind of keeps a business logic. It's not seen as infrastructure. It's seen as something that has to make a profit. I mean, that was quite clear in York, actually, where, you know, you yeah. see in the actual council minutes, they talk about, you know, such and such a line didn't make enough profit. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's absolutely pervasive. You know, I've got a document behind me, which, which I refer to, oh, oh the back. That's very painful. painful. I've got a document behind me, which you can find, I think, on Railways Archive. This is a fantastic document. Uh, This is British Railways. Oh, the spine. British Railways, probably (laughs) its most efficient and effective uh, at the point that this is being published, or certainly getting close to it. They were approaching, so so certainly by the mid-80s, so this was late 70s, or 1980 pretty much exactly. By the mid-80s, British Railways phenomenally efficient, probably one of the most efficient railway systems in the world in terms of what it could achieve for how little uh, input. But it was still all discussing business uh, and, and being a business and all this stuff. And I, I was kind of wondering what what could have what could they have achieved if they'd been considered more of a service and we'd actually invested in the railways like you know to the level we do now. But anyway, so yeah, um, you know I don't know if I told you this actually. The first time I ever met with Dr. DT, Dr. David Turner, um, the, one of the first conversations we had was about permanence of infrastructure, and he he pointed me in your direction and said. You should absolutely read yeah. what Dr. Kevin Tennant has done on this subject. So, um, so it's almost nice now that we're talking about this. We're kind of covering this subject now. So it's a, a long loop of uh, of the three of us kind of covering this. Anyway, right? Let us 
let us press on. Um, so we've got this. We've got we've got these. We've got buses, trolley buses, and trams, um, and they're, they're kind of in a way on a bit of a spectrum of, of uh, uh, sort of. I'm conscious that within the within the kind of oh we'll, we'll get to that picture in a minute within the kind of spectrum of of, of my um, well in fact within the not a metro sorter trolley buses don't feature and the reason for this is because they are buses yes they have features of a tram but ultimately the fact that it's tires on tarmac means that it has the energy efficiency challenges that a normal bus has and some of the capacity challenges as well um, but it does have the adva- some advantages of trams so we'll talk a bit about that momentarily but. Um, the reason I thought, the reason I wanted, I mean, we've we wanted to have this episode for ages, Kevin, but the thing that really prompted me to think about having this episode was um, thinking about this bit of kit here, um, this thing right here, which is, to all intents and purposes, people might look at it and go, oh, it's a tram. It is not a tram, folks. This is a bus. Yes. It looks like a sort of Skelectric set. It is a Skelectric set, exactly. <laughs> it's a bus. This thing is a bus. And a lot of people are going, well, why, why is it important that it's a bus and not... Why are you thinking that it's important that it's a bus and not a tram? Because actually, as we'll talk about, lots of elements of what we're looking at here make this have a lot of features that make it appealing in the way that a tram is appealing. So whilst there are sensible reasons to not build this and instead build a tram, for example, this is more expensive than just building a regular tram... Um, Actually, it embodies a lot of features that are important as part of infrastructure that that drive the modal shift that you wouldn't get if it was if it looked like a bus. And so it raises interesting questions that I think I think we're going to get into quite nicely um, in this session. Oh, so yeah, here's the the the, the, the <laughs> metro sorter for anyone who's not seen this. Um, yeah, trolley buses don't feature because they are just buses. But this is the the way that this is the official rail natter trans- suburban transport classification system. So when we're talking about you know, lots of things refer to themselves as light rail. Light rail doesn't exist. Light rail is generally just trams. So we're going to be referring to trams, but we're referring to all sorts of the modern systems. You know, people refer to MCSs or LRTs. These are all just trams, folks. So this is important for when we're talking about these things. This is the language that, that Kevin and I are going to be using. Um, modern trams, perhaps, is a way to, to, to be specific, but actually they're all trams. They're just, um, there's, there's old and new. Anyway, so that's that's the context. So before we do any of that, though, Kevin, we, we, we chatted about this structure. I thought a good way for us to start is we're talking about permanence, the permanent way. Well, I thought, first of all, I'd define, because a lot of people hear me refer to the permanent way. I am a permanent way engineer. I thought it would be a useful thing to start with by defining what the hell the, the permanent way actually is. Um, hello, everyone in the chat, by the way. If you've got a question, at my name in, and it'll appear in red, and it makes it easy for me to spot the spot the questions. Um, if anyone wants to know, by the way, why that thing wasn't a tram, I did a thread on it on Twitter, and I'll, I'll maybe I can link that in the description, actually. But but there's a thread on Twitter. If you search me and not a metro, it'll probably appear. But anyway, the permanent way. Well, here is some. Uh, this thing right here is the uh, is what I believe is the Diolcos, uh, what's called Diolcos. It, it was a to all intents and purposes, a railway built in 600 AD by the ancient Greeks. Um, and <laughs> why do I say that? Well, because it was an infrastructure designed to reduce friction. It had a set gauge, if you like. It had a, a set inter- a set compatibility between infrastructure and vehicle. And it was, um, it was a permanent system. It was designed to be a permanent system. And it was actually used to move boats. So for me, I define the permanent way. And you might have different thoughts on this, Kev. But I define the permanent way as a fixed, low-friction guideway with common standards between infrastructure and vehicle. That's kind of the 
key. That, that, that qualifier is an important part of the def definition for me, but ultimately is a fixed low friction guideway. So, um, yes. Yeah. Sorry, it's gone, go Kevin. Yeah. Yeah, I think you might. I mean, actually, I was just going to say cheekily that that might be more of a tramway than a railway because it's sunk into. So I don't know if there were once rails there, but that actually has a lot in common with. Um, so if you go to Ironbridge, you can yes. see uh, old tramways on the wharf there that have been sunk. So, um, so, so for me, a, a tramway is the permanent way. So for me, that counts as yeah. a form of permanent way. Exactly. So this, yeah. this, this thing. So for me, it's like the extreme. And, and this also includes where you have, you know, the split log rolled, you know, put on with, with the mine carts from the 1500s. And it yeah. includes where you had, you had other Greek technologies where they had a single slot in the middle. And essentially the wagon would get pulled by a horse, but the slot would help keep it in line. These, these are all for me forms of, of, of permanent way. Um, and so, yeah, on the extreme opposite end, obviously, you've got, you know, what, what is this, some beautiful slab track, uh, the extreme opposite ends. But, you know, this, for, for what we're discussing here, you have, as, as you were describing a minute ago, Kevin, you've got a, uh, an, a kind of yeah. an embedded tramway here. In this case, it's a, a green tramway where they've um, put turf around it, which um, may look nice. It's a bit of a nightmare for maintenance. But anyway. Um, that the system. That's yeah. it. So no, that's Milan actually. Um, that's oh, Milan. Milan! Yeah, no, I've been on. Yeah, I've been on the Milan system in no, the past. Yeah, it's quite, yeah, I, it's I, quite I, a nice. It's quite a nice traditional system. Yeah, but one thing that's worth mentioning there is that so tramways, you trams are slightly so traditional tramways are slightly different from railways actually in that they have that groove so the rail is flat like that and then there's a groove in the yes. rail even yeah, yeah, we, so but actually yeah, um, but some, sorry, yeah some modern tramways well, some modern example, tramways actually yeah. divert from that so they actually have a, a conventional yeah. rail with a with a, a flangeway gap this girder rail like this is a very clever sorry. way to maintain the gap uh correction uh i uh al store has pointed out that i said 680 i meant bce sorry everyone i meant 600 bce <laughs> Uh, so 600 years before zero so minus 600 yeah. if you like sorry uh it'd be great if we had a time a, a year system that didn't start with zero in the middle of it which zero should be <laughs> anyway we, we, I, I, like the Kurt, I like the kurtzkasak system which is like they start they, they add a ten thousand to everything so that so makes the numbers easier anyway um yes sorry you're you're all absolutely right so for me, this is all different types of permanent way, and also, you know, this is this helps when it comes to dealing with gadget band stuff, like like uh, you know, maglev. That's a type of permanent way. Uh, guided bus, you could argue, that's a type of permanent way, right? Um, the the permanent way doesn't. It, it, for me, the low friction helps with that definition. So the low friction element is where I maybe say actually a guided bus way doesn't have the low friction element, so it it, it lacks that low friction interface. But um, in any case, you know, that, for me, that's the definition of the permanent way. Anyway, anyway, let us come back to our lovely orange pictures um, of, of buses, trolleybuses <laughs> and trams, because kind of we're going to talk about the history, right? We're going to talk about some context. So, you know, the, the, the back in 1962 in the UK alone, right? Actually, is this UK or just GB? The data that's just like the, that? that's just the that's the UK. Yes. Yeah, so is, is it so is it also uh, Ireland, Republic of Ireland, or is it just Northern Ireland and, and England, Wales, Scotland? Uh, it's only, I don't know if it includes Northern Ireland or not, actually, to be honest, but I mean, there, there was only one in Belfast, anyway, okay. apart from the dairy system that closed in 1919. There you go. Uh, so, so, yeah, so it could <laughs> but be. not the Republic now. Yeah, yeah. So, but... so, so we'll, we'll say GB, but possibly it also includes Northern Ireland. But um, uh, so, yeah, by 1962, kind of we've got this, you know, we've got all these wonderful systems, but in, the, in, in GB, by 1962, we'd, we'd had 161 tram systems close. 
And that's worth qualifying by saying that in 1962, there was only one operating, well, two operating, if you count Blackpool, but yeah. Glasgow was, and obviously Sheffield had gone in 1960. So after the war, there's like maybe 10 left. Yeah, crikey. Uh, so that's, that's what I'm saying, actually, is that most of them bite the bullet much earlier. Yes. Um, than this even, right? So. Yeah, there's, again, it, yeah. It, that plays a little bit into the railway uh, David talks about this a little bit. We've got this blinkered view that all the bad stuff happened post-war, but actually this was a long period of decline that had started even before the First World War. Actually, as 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 the motor, you know, the, the motor bus had started becoming increasingly popular and, and affordable. Um, so 1962 trams. What about trolley buses? Well, by 1972, 33 systems had closed. I presume that's all of the systems. So we'd had 33 systems, and they were all Kaputsky by that point. Had Bradford still, yeah, so did Bradford still operate at this point, or had it gone? Because I, I seem to remember it maybe being up to like even 1976, possibly, but I might have misremembered that. Bradford was quite late. Yeah, I might be, I might be right. Uh, I know the Seaside trackless and whatever trolley bus bar closed about then. I think, yeah, Bradford certainly closed in the 70s, if not. Maybe I've got that wrong slightly, but yeah, certainly by the early 70s. But that was like one, buses... of the, one of, if not the latest, right, wasn't it? Yeah, so trolley buses are interesting because they have this really weird life in which the first trolley bus line, I believe, was between Leeds, in the UK anyway, it was between Leeds and Bradford. And it was basically because the two had different tramway gauges and oh, couldn't really? interoperate. So, they, so, so let's introduce another system into the mix instead. But then the next thing about trolley buses was that it was kind of, oh, the the, the view of tramways was that the, the so tramways are always meant to recoup the capital of investing in them. Yes. So this is the thing that's often not understood about the sort of, yeah, about tramways in Britain was that they were purely a kind of commercial venture, crazy yeah. as it might sound almost. And they were, you know, and, they, and, and, the bit, and we'll get to this a bit more later, but the thing is, is that, oh yeah, okay, we can, we can still use some of the investment some of the permanent way by running trolley buses. Yes. Basically, that's the entire yeah. point of them. And they kind of have this, and, and there is a period in which trolley buses have a bright future. I think that the peak of them in Britain was 1943. And then they, they fall away almost, fall as a, away almost as quickly as they appeared. Um, we just had it confirmed by a few, by the way, that you're absolutely spot on. It is 72 that Bradford closes, so it is yeah. earlier than I thought. So yeah. you're absolutely spot on. Of course you're spot on. You're an academic. You sweat but, blood and tears over making sure this stuff is right. Um, oh, well, well, well it's, it tends to be the enthusiasts that, that try and check up on you. <laughs> so, uh, yes, yeah, so, um, so that, yeah, there we go. Uh, and people are confirming that, that, that Bradford was the last British system. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I'm nerding out a little bit, uh, that I have some level of Bradford uh, trolleybus nerdery. At some point, I'll do an episode on the Brad, Bradford uh, trolleybus system because it gives me an excuse to go and do some filming at Saltair and possibly drink beer in their trolleybus shed. Anyway, but then it's not, you'd think, right, okay, trams got doomed up, trolleybuses got doomed up. What about buses? Surely buses are emergent and wonderful, right? <laughs> Because then yep. having having gone so basically this logic and we'll talk about this history in more detail. I I, I, I don't know. I'm getting ahead, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but but kind of trams were considered. Well, there's all this heavy infrastructure, you know, and they're and that's limiting because you can't be flexible. So actually, but trolley buses can be more flexible. But actually, essentially, trolley buses are as restricted as trams are. Really, okay, they don't they can sort of drive yeah. around if there's a hole in the road or something. They've got a minimal additional bit of flexibility, but actually, they're about as limiting as as limited as, as, as trams were but then buses people are like oh buses are the future fantastic and then we have deregulation and a load of services get cut and and we're still having services getting cut to this day 
so yeah, deregulation arrives and, and it's bad news all around. So um, yeah, I, I don't know, Kevin, if you wanted to sort of bullet point or or, or put, a, put a bit of punctuation on that one. Well, I mean, the, yeah, the deregulation thing is interesting because it's a sort of a... Well, okay, so the buses thing is interesting from the start because there's a sort of, a, oh, why would we not want buses? You know, they're flexible. Um, they run in the normal road traffic, all this kind of thing. But that's also the problem with them, right? Yeah. <laughs> and because yeah, then you might as well just get a car. Almost, it's kind exactly. of exactly that's literally, um, isn't it? It's like this this, it, this kind of lowest common denominator destination for the for the attitude of thinking. Oh, it's a it's a business, therefore, and then you end up just degrading it and degrading it and degrading it. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think to be fair, okay, we could. So that period. The interesting thing is that period from about seventy two to eighty six. So certainly, the so. That, that sort of period, I that's when, that's probably the the biggest window when transport in Britain is is briefly not seen as an industry. Yeah. By the, but at least by the left. And then, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but I mean, it's kind of, but yeah, it's complicated. Um, anybody out there wants to do a PhD on transport history, look at the PTEs. There's masses to talk about. Yeah, very yeah, under. It's, it's an absolute yeah, rich seam. Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing is, is that the deregulation happens in, I think, the same year exactly, actually, that the metropolitan counties are broken up. Yes. So that means that the, the power of the metropolitan counties decreases at the same time as the PTEs. They keep going and they keep getting subsidies from the new councils but or the, the boroughs. But the interesting thing is, is that they kind of retreat into real. So this is why you get, you know, two or three year, years later to link back to the Pacers thing. You know, they're suing BR over Pacers yeah. because it's, <laughs> yes, it's yeah, the yeah. main thing they can control. So they get more interested in real after that. And start chucking a lot more resources at rail because they can they kind of give up on buses gradually. Yeah. Um, so, so, so yeah, so it's a big but the other thing that's quite interesting about the eighties period is that you've got this sort of there probably needs to be you could probably do a whole episode on bus deregulation. Oh, we will. Because it's about this <laughs> it's a similar sort of a what I would call I've never been able to publish this yet, but there's basically this thing that I would call the sort of market romantics which is this kind of group of people who believe that, oh, if, if it's, it's kind of like Liz Trust, but much earlier. It's like, oh, if only you only you chuck it onto the free market, then the market will provide. Buses, it's like, buses unchained. You, know, you get this wonderful, well, yeah, you get this wonderful, so there's a guy called, uh, an economist called John Hibbs, who wrote many wonderful articles. I'm saying that in a, like, in, in, in the terms of the naivety of them. Yeah. I mean, there's a great <laughs> yeah, one where yeah. he claims that, you know, minibuses will pop up magically to take housewives shopping. I mean, that's that's just a measure of the time. Though. But you know, but that's but that's what he sort of talks about. Is oh yeah, rural services will be provided by small entrepreneurs and all this. And of course, it's it's just nonsense. It's because... amazing how naive these people who are supposedly like sharp teeth vampires. It's amazing how naive they are about what they think that. The... I mean, ultimately, it's cynical. You know, the reality is they don't really care because they'll. All... Uber has provided the perfect example of why this stuff falls in. Bus deregulation meant that within... So so for anyone looking at the 1980 to 1986, 1980 was the year that the national bus services were deregulated. So you got the emergence of the likes of you know National Express and, and, and that. 1986 yeah. was the year that the local bus networks were atomized into in, and deregulated so that kind of that period so i've said 1980 to 1986 but really deregulation then continued a bit because obviously you had that process of the of the kind of the the the, the dispersal and then the, and then the coagulation of of bus companies but you had 
just as with Uber in more recent years, Uber pretending to be some magical solve-all for, for transport, you had huge high density of buses competing with each other on high density corridors to the point of being completely you know, wrecking any sort of level of efficiency, capacity and, and, uh, and, and usefulness. And then you basically had services anywhere rural being cut as much as they possibly could be to the point of where there still remains some level of public service obligation. Which is exactly what Uber did. Uber were like, we're going to make Uber pitch themselves as we're going to solve all those problems of all the people who can't get onto public transport because they're at the fringes. And and I think New Zealand did some very good studies specifically looking at the density of operations. And immediately Uber just, you could not get an Uber anywhere rural and all the Uber operation was within the heart of the city where public transport was most effective. Um, yeah, and, and you see this in Manchester, idea. right? This is why they've got deep, this is why they've got franchising is because you had two or three bus companies competing on the most dense core Useless. Sorry, go on, Kev. I'm I, I yeah, shouting that just, Well, yeah, and when you've got, when I would say this is one of the problems with competition is that, uh, well, the first thing about competition is that it denotes a winner, but actually, <laughs> but I, so that's one of the problems is that there's a static model. Yeah. So all of these ideas of, oh, if you increase competition, there'll be more offers to the public. But of course, the other side of that is Michael Porter. It's, so oh, I've got to have a better product. I've got to have a strategy to win against the other guy. Yep. So, and, that, and, and that's actually, oh, the best way to make a profit is actually to have a monopoly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's to have a monopoly. So, it's to, it's to so, either buy out or so, out-compete or, or, or yeah. you know, compete to the point of back, forcing your opponent into bankruptcy, which isn't useful competition yeah. at all. It's, oh, there's one operator. And we've, you know, we've and the other, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. The other problem with competition is that, of this form, is that where, it's, it's where you can switch banks or something, that might be fine. But in this case, it's, it's 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 kind of there's only a limited space even for buses to run, yeah. and it it kind of confuses the public. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so in one city, two different bus companies, it just kind of confuses the public, and as a result, fewer people will use the bus overall, and the yeah. pie size goes down actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's no ad, you know, it doesn't increase advocacy for buses or anything like that actually. Um, I mean, I've you know I've argued this about open off access operators on railways as well. It doesn't actually help. Yep. Um, there are some statistics, oddly, showing that Lumo increased uh, rail use from Edinburgh to London, but I'm not convinced it will in the long run. Yeah. Oh, that's we, we yeah. have that's that's got to be a future episode because I would love to explore. Yeah. I, I'm sort of not informed enough to make a full call on open access operators. Although my general vibe is. Um, if they're so successful, why is that not being run by the incumbent state operator uh, yeah. to make to then cross subsidise? It's like you're undermining the whole point of a railway system, which is that the the things that make money cross subsidise the things that can never make money. That's kind of that's how services yeah. work. Um, really. that's, that's that's one for another episode, I think. So let yeah. us dive into the the deep lore of tramways to start with of trams and we're going to talk about the 1910s and 1920s actually these two pictures are swapped around because i think the first is from the 1920s and the second is from the 1910s but uh these two pictures yeah. here um kevin t- t- talk to us about these two pictures so, so basically these are the this is the sort of the the golden age of tramways if you like if there actually was one yeah. uh, <laughs> so i think this is so in, in britain i mean it's one of the things about tramways in britain is that um, in kind of working class memory, if you like, they have quite a favorable position, but they were never something that was universally welcomed in Britain, I guess, or it yeah. was never, I don't think they ever kind of reached actually, you know, they, they reached their kind of zenith in the sort of county boroughs of the north, really. So Salford's on the left, and obviously it had one of those, so Salford and Manchester and the boroughs around there, 
had one of the biggest kind of networks. Um, but the and, but the, the thing that's important about both pictures, I mean, so you've got York on the right there, um, and that's actually Acom in York. So you can still actually find this place now, actually, because if you go to that exact spot, the, the road changes its name from York Road, which I think is behind the, the so where the camera is, and then yeah. where the tram is there, that's actually Acom Road, and it swaps yeah. over at that point. And the reason for that was, was that that was, a, that was the boundary at the time of the city of York, and they couldn't get planning permission. They tried oh, really? To get so them. literally, that's so, so I've picked white comically which isn't hugely clear yeah. at that point there where the tram lines end is the is yeah. the boundary okay that's interesting yeah. the parish the parish council <laughs> they tried to get a cent and the parish council blocked it right and so that was actually the west riding county council's land <laughs> on this side and the, the so but the the good the great thing about that picture is is that it shows that you know the the, the, the tramway basically, you know, could have the, the route to itself in this period. Yeah. So you've got a few horses and carts and so on. But although in big cities, so very big cities, horses and carts are a problem, right? Uh, and horses are a problem. They create dung and this kind of thing. So actually the car was seen as a good thing because it got rid of the dung. Yeah. Well, right? But, but, but generally, gen generally speaking, they're in an environment where... Um, you know, it's a single vehicle on the road, so you can have the tram going up the middle of Aircom Road there without causing massive problems. I also just love the way that it stops without any buses or anything. Um, and that's yeah. where it just had turned around, you know, so they just got out turned the pole going, but it didn't matter, you know, it didn't matter if it was in, apparently in the middle of the road, there's no kind of particular because yeah, you know, it was back but, when people had yeah. ownership of the roads, you could yeah, walk out of the road see. and you'd be fine. That space yeah. is okay. You could play in the road. Kids could, could, could muck around in the corner of the road, and they wouldn't get turned into mush by a by an yeah. SUV. Yeah, and you see these windows. So don't try walking where that boy is now. You know, yeah, um, he'd be dead. Yeah, he'd be dead. Yeah, exactly. So, so these wonderfully dressed Edwardians, you know, they're, they're 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 milling around not just to get to the vehicle, but you know, because they they can. Yeah, because yeah, they can. <laughs> and, and, they can mooch around. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Have yeah. a chat. It's fine. All these, you know, these, these. Everyone's out for a little walk. Everyone's looking absolutely sensational. There's, there's some seriously good fits around here. I, I, there's some seriously great outfits. You know, skirts on skirts on skirts. And this, also, this guy's, this guy's little sort of, oh, what a yeah, superhero yeah, yeah. outfit that is. Amazing. Um, so, so we've got two pictures. Yeah. I'll do some audio description for the audio only people. So, so the Aiken yeah, picture, there's black um, and white one. I think this is from the 1910s, right? Um, yeah, this is about 1910. So I think this is just just not long after it opened, actually. It's yeah, not long, not oh, okay, not long after it opened. So it's a very, that explains why the vehicle is very shiny. Um, yeah, yeah. Nice. Although I'm surprised at how quickly the poles seem to be leaning over. Having yeah. been <laughs> for, yeah, for all the OLE people, Gary, if you're watching this, you can laugh at this pole, which is sort of. <laughs> This this is quite good. This this poll that I'm talking about particularly is good. Anyway, I digress. So that's that's the picture here. So that's so that's pretty much 1910. Uh, that one there, my scribbling there. That's 1910. So this one up here, the Salford picture, which is a nice uh, sort of um, polychrome actually, which I, I guess is a painted yeah. black and white picture. I uh, think so. I don't know. I mean, photograph I, yeah. that's then sort of post touched up. Um, I purely stole it from. I purely stole it from Wikimedia. I think just because it kind of illustrates the point that I want to make that. You know, you, again, even in the 20s, you're starting to get more of a challenge for the road surface. Yes. But this is inside a big city, yep. you know, and people can walk around quite freely. There's a guy on a bike, okay, but 
as a as again a horse and cart, you know. But things are starting to change by that point. Okay. Mm-hmm. The other thing actually that's worth saying here is is that so overhead lines, you know, you've got so you see in big cities very complicated junctions. And you can see how complicated the system works if you look on real map. Um, yeah, or, yeah. Get get the National um, Library of Scotland uh, mapping up, and you can look at all the tram yeah. lines on there. When you get the one, the the the, the one mile to twenty five inch mapping, which is the really high resolution, the really really decent resolution stuff, and a decent high a kind of large scale stuff, you really see the complexity of the tram lines in there. You you go somewhere like Manchester, you know, Salford, and the the, the, the complexity of the tram system, or um or what's the square? Is it Old Market Square or Old Castle Square in Nottingham? That was a really yeah, legendarily you know, complex junction with with double tracks going all over the place. Yeah, really spectacular. Yeah, so so again, you can have this like multi multi directional junction going on, and you know, again, you'd have in big cities. Again, you'd often have kind of sidings. Um, I know in Glasgow there was a case where there was a special school, for example, and they just had a siding going off to a special school down the side oh, really? street. You know, things like this. So, yeah, there's plenty of this. If you look at Glasgow, there's loads of sightings. It's hard to work out what they're all for, but they must have yeah. all been for... <laughs> yeah, what on earth, what on earth is the operating model and the timetable for probably, these? Yeah. Probably just worked once a day or something. But yeah. but this is the thing, was that it was normative. You could have... Another good case of it was... Um, um, so, football grounds, they worked well because uh, you could have a lot of sightings and you could line up loads of trams without causing particular chaos. Mm. Um, so uh, you know, sort of places where there are lots of people coming at once. So again, so you could carry loads of people easily without actually causing a traffic jam. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's I remember just, like just... an old man telling me about how they um, in Sunderland at Ruka they like you know they would go along the seafront pretty much there at Ruka and if a tra- if a tram broke down you know the tram behind it could just push it even. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, it was kind of, obviously nowadays that would be out of service. Everything's closed for hours. Sorry. You know, but but anyway. Yeah, so 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 this kind of environment was why the trams were very much um you know they they, they were they very much could do what they liked essentially. Yeah, because yeah. they were they were the dominant infrastructure, right? So they've got all this the infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although this wasn't uncontroversial, right? This is the other thing. So there was a certain amount of opposition to lines going up. And obviously in London, um, in central London, you had third rail or conduit, actually not really third rail, but you had conduit trams. Look it up on Google. Um, Metro also had that, if I mention it. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, so, so you have, on some parts of London, they won't allow trams at all because of the overhead lines. So... Interesting. I'll cut in and just say, Paul Dickin, thank you for pointing out that the poles are supposed to be leaning. Uh, they are supposed to have a rake, um, as as, as they are. called. Um, very pronounced with trolleybus operation, apparently. Oh, thanks, thanks, Paul. This is what Railnet is all about. The people in the chat, you're part oh. of this too. Thanks, Paul. That's is that some preserve, interesting information. Is that to preserve the tension in the cable? Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that they'd install them like that because installing something at a specific rake is more complicated than just using a plumb line to keep it level. And that's, then and then tensioning off the, 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 the tensioning off the sort of trolley cables uh, accordingly. So interesting choice. Um, yeah. So we've got the, so we've got this situation where we've got this kind of the, the the trams not uncontroversially kind of rule the roost at this point. There's there's not really much in the way. They can put the trams wherever they like. And um, the design of the system overall means that you have these individual tram cars, these street cars, these 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 trolleys, however you want to describe them, um, you know, internationally. That, that were kind of individual units and, and as a result you got a quite 
you know, to refer to the stupid Hyperloop logic, these were kind of the pods that were responsive. They they were pretty responsive. You had a high frequency of them, and they could be pretty responsive to, to surges in traffic and demand, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they went in all bloody directions. So these things would go along, and they'd, be, they'd, you know, they'd have to have pretty prominent information on the front because they did, as you talk about sidings, they'd be whizzing off in all directions at the junctions that they were. These, these are impressive systems. Well, there's a great old uh, video of Vienna somewhere on the internet where there's literally like a, well, not a video, a, a film. Mm. And there's like, it shows, you know, the main street in Vienna around 1900, 1910. And there's literally like an electric tram, like every 10 seconds passing the camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah these are so, highly, that, effective, that, highly effective and ways of moving people around, right? Those, those films are quite low framework, quite low frame rate and quite fast, but still. Yeah. The, yeah, the yeah, sheer yeah. number of them. Yeah. It's spectacular. So uh, we come up against some challenges. So I've done, I've gone for pictorial representation of some of the challenges, right? So we'll yeah. through, so this this first one. These are some of the challenges that started facing. So if you like some emerging challenges that started facing tramways, right? So so number one among these was, uh, and I've got a nice picture of some converging tracks here um, in Manchester. <laughs> the double track versus single track. So perhaps something you can talk a bit about, Kev, of, of one of these challenges. So the single track thing is interesting because a lot of, I mean, I'm not sure what proportion exactly, but if you look at, um, somebody can go through the board of trade statistics and look at it. But if you look at a lot of branches, you know, they're single track mm. and that's fine when the tram's the only thing on the road. So you might not want a high frequency. Or someone like York that was quite small, you could still get a frequency of every six to 10 minutes. Yeah. Actually with single track and the tram's just um, passing each other at a passing loop. Oh, okay. So so that was fine, um, you know, but the problem is, so it's not even that operationally restrictive, right? But, of course, the problem is, is that once you start to get other road traffic, suddenly a vehicle that can go two ways is a little bit yeah. unpredictable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, I, and I think that starts to be a problem. And there's, there's great documents I've seen from York where they're bringing in the kind of A road system in the 30s. And the council applies for funding to get the uh, road actually to ACOM improved as part of the A59. And the, the MOT are saying, well, you need to relay the tram line here in a different place. And, you know, they're asking for very particular restrictions around the tramway. And I think that's one of the things that just starts to, um, you know, it just starts to kind of. Just, starts eroding some of their dominance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, and, and, and um, the great thing as well, so you know, traffic lights. Um, when uh, so this is when this is one issue. Yeah, so was, when traffic lights start coming in, it wasn't really clear if trams should be part of them or not. Oh uh, yeah, so we'll get yeah we'll get onto traffic lights in a second. So so the next yeah. so the next sort of thing you, you, that we can point out is, is is actually where the trams sat in the road. So you know where yeah. they were in the road and also the kind of their the complexity of the junctions so this is another challenge that they had to face right well one of the early problems with it's interesting because actually when the it wasn't until the 30s that it was finally decided whether side roads should give way in britain or not oh really right <laughs> so, not so actually yeah. the, the royal commission we'll talk about in a minute was actually quite important for working out the highway code and coming to agreements so yeah. So in France, the, 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 the normative was actually uh, prior to Adoir, I think it's called, to say that the, the right-hand road would, would have priority. Ah. And this survived until even the 1990s, I can remember, uh, in France in some cases. So so 
that was considered, I think the AA, I think, advocated, if I remember vaguely, um, for something like this in Britain as well. Yeah. So weird that might seem, right? <laughs> so, so even things like what's the priority um, of different routes is not really resolved at this time. So where transfer into this priority is quite tricky. Um, yeah, yeah, as well, yeah. because obviously they're not as movable as other vehicles, and they have more predetermined paths and all this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then connected so really... to that, then as as you say, is is traffic lights, uh, as you kind of allude to the, the the challenge of these new techno this new technology of of traffic lights and what the hell those mean for trams. Yeah. So again, the I knew that. So again, in the the, the York Transport Committee minutes are a great sort of mine of information here. So the York <laughs> Police asked the trams to stop one car length behind the line at the lights um, for some reason. But <laughs> but, they were, so, but, they, but but that kind of suggests that the trams are given some kind of second-hand status almost um, in the system already. Yeah, so there's there's a kind of a tension yeah. between the, 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 the kind of the road environment, which is slowly changing. It's that false view that the, that the car represented the, the, the individual the the, per yeah. the individual person and therefore that person's individual rights trumped somehow even even, even though they're in a metal two-ton metal well at this time probably about 300 kilogram metal box um yeah. they they trumped somehow they trumped the 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 rights of a vehicle with you know 30 people or 40 people in it um yeah, yeah. That's, that's happening early on it's interesting yeah, well, it was, I think it must have been quite chaotic. And it didn't matter kind of like how we're facing this riding, riding, rising tide of chaos. So what do we do? So... Yeah, yeah. And then the last so challenge surprised. that comes along is, is the introduction of one-way systems, just as the last sort of real bastion of, of, of challenge for, for tram systems. So, uh, yeah, What the hell do they do with it? It's yeah. a one-way. So there are cases of, that I've come across, or I've heard of where, I think it was mentioned again in that Royal Commission, where... There are trams that are left running the wrong way down one-way streets oh my goodness. and things like this. So again, you know, that's that's a letter to the, you know, the, the York Herald or whatever. This must be got rid of, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of, you know, and that's that's always coming from the position of the motorist, you know, even though the trams are there first. Um, yeah. So there are real kind of problems inherent in this, I think, in, in various different ways um that that you know is still unresolved though I mean, you can still experience some of these issues now if you go to kind of cities that have traditional tramways so um philadelphia is a great case where uh you know you can the, the, you can so the, the tramway system once you get out of the tunnel in philadelphia um so west west philadelphia yeah, yeah. West Philly. I, I, I have the pleasure of, of riding around on these quite uh, a lot a few weeks ago yeah, so yeah i know them well of, um of kind of so so that whole area but you know you can there's, there's one stop there that I found where it is literally like just in front of a traffic light and there's cars parked and you have to go out between the parked cars to get on the tram and, you know, things like all sorts of campers like this. And, yeah. you know, the trams can easily get blocked by parked cars. And, yeah, I, you know, yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so these pressures right, start and, emerging. And for whatever reason, society, certainly okay. in the UK, we, we seem to start this thing, this weird way that we're wired, we start erring in favor or, you know, against the tram and in favor of the alternative for some reason. Um, there's this, I, I've, I have spotted, by the way, the question uh, about, there, there's a question in here about um, BRT versus trams. We'll, we'll ask that at the end, because it's it, it'll be good to kind of talk about that at the end once we've kind of gone through this, because it's a very good question. We'll, we'll get there, we'll get there. So let us press on. Uh, in fact, we're talking about the US. Here's a nice picture of what, I, what must be an interurban uh, on the yeah, road here. <laughs> 
which is quite this spectacular is in the, LA. I think it's part of the Pacific Electric. Okay, yeah. Famous Pacific Electric system, which basically is quite interesting because it basically built LA and then was ripped up almost as quickly as it was put in place. <laughs> right, so oh. that's, a, that's a long story short. But the interesting thing about it as well was that it was built to, it was built as a deliberate loss leader. So it's a very different oh. situation to the UK where the idea was is that it was, so it was an entrepreneur called Henry E. Huntington. He wanted to uh, make money basically from property and water. Ah, and so it was seen as the bigger system. He had lots, he had land he wanted to sell lots to. Yeah. And, and this was seen as the way to get people out there. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So, so LA is a big kind of property speculation sort of syndicate. <laughs> and, and, and basically what happens is as soon as you get this sort of suburbia starting to move away from the tramway, then it's like, oh, well, the tramway's a bit useless. Let's get rid of it. So, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, basically, right. long story short. And then they, they spent the rest of the 20th century regretting it. Yeah, yeah, too right. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so then we jump forward to the period of between 1929 and 1931, because this was the period when in the UK we had um, the Royal Commission on Transport, or rather a, a study by the Royal Commission on Transport. So... Tell us about this document. Tell us about what the ramifications were of this and, and, and what its remit was, what it looked at and what the impacts were. Yeah, so this is really interesting because it, it's a point where there's a real kind of, there's a sense that, okay, rail is declining. But part of the, the reason that they look at this is that basically there's a sense that the roads need to be tamed somehow. <laughs> so, so, you know, I think it was something like a million cars had gone on the road. I forget the exact statistics. Mm. Again, quite staggering numbers as well for rude haulage as well. So things like rude haulage are starting to get going. Um, you know, there's there's lots of bus routes start popping up. Yeah. Um, they also start to kind of compete with tramways to an extent and all this kind of thing. So there's a there's a big kind of you know the, 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 it's like a, a sort of a long series of hearings basically around well, okay, how should we try to manage the system? We can't better manage solutions. So they talked to all sorts of groups from the Association of Railway Servants right up to they're basically in charge of the railways taking over everything. Uh, <laughs> right right up to the AA and RAC on the other side, who mm. you know are obviously much more keen on cars. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but also kind of groups like municipal organizations and the bus firms and all the other sorts of players, the road transport firms, and, and, and they kind of look at all of this. So they try and look at this in the round, but some of the decisions that are taken have quite important kind of ramifications for what, what comes later, really. Um, so one of the big recommendations is around the, the capital issue on tramways is that, um, you know, they, they basically say that, um, yeah, so they look at the whole country's municipal tramway sector and they say that £85 million pounds worth of capital has been outlaid by councils, but by 1930 or by 1929, only 47 million of that has been recouped. So just over half. So they're looking and at this business, of... this business logic of like thinking of it as a, and looking at the numbers and thinking, well, if that was a business, it would have gone bust and, and this sort of. Yeah. And, and one of the problems here is, is that it's, it was politically unacceptable, right, to subsidize transport from the rates. So it was understood that the idea was that it would, it would provide a subsidy to the rates. Um, yeah. In this period, it was completely, you know, and it only comes, say, in York at, during the Depression when they're very much, oh, well, okay, well, you know. Um, in, I think um, so. My old PhD student, James Fowler, has shown that it wasn't until the 1970s, I think, in London that there was a direct subvention from the Ritz. 
Right. So not even as late as the kind of 1960s, yeah. there was still an expectation that London transport would in some way be fiscally self-sufficient. Yeah. Um, okay. Even if that just meant borrowing more money. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> so 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 this is quite important. So what they then say is, oh yeah, okay. Uh, we also identify that trams are in the way, basically, of road vehicles, other road vehicles. So this is why we then push for, and they in this report basically say, our oh, tramways are a dead loss. Get rid of them <laughs> because oh, they're in the way. They're too inflexible. They're in the way. They're not paying back the capital interest. We can try and save some of it by having it with headlines, basically. And also a lot of the local authorities welcome this as well. Yeah. So they kind of say, you know, abandon, gradually abandon tramways, um, except where maybe the traffic's too high. So the ones that hang on, like Edinburgh, Glasgow, uh, and Dundee and Sheffield, um, to some extent, Liverpool, they've got, often got quite big traffic flows. So the interesting thing is at this point, um, trams can still actually hold more people than any yes. bus or trolley bus can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 it's even, <laughs> so, so this is identified for a while as a thing. Um, and actually, in you know, some cities, they do try investing a bit more in the trams after this. So that's very much a local government kind of thing. But, but yeah, so you know, even in York, they talk about, you know, they look at converting to uh, trolley bus. In Doncaster, around here, they, they just get rid of trams pretty much. I was going to say, yeah, we move, we move kind of into this bus. era of... Newcastle too, yeah, you know, this, so, this idea that yeah. they'll save you. So Newcastle's another good case where, you know, actually they, the, the Gateshead system of trams south of the town remains and they, the, the lines over the town bridge stay, but the Newcastle Corporation lines are converted to trolleybus uh, quite quickly mm. uh, around this time as well, right? So yeah, so trolleybuses are going to be this magic great hoop that's going to save everything. Um, and yeah, they're, they're more manoeuvrable, hopefully, you know, they're steerable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, within a limited radius, you know. Parked cars, that yeah. sort of thing, yeah. yeah no, you still run them, still run them a bit, you still run them quite frequently, um, you know, they've still got, you know, you can have, yeah, you know, you can hold quite a lot of people. And the, 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 I think another thing that's quite attractive at this time is that they're enclosed as well, which a lot of trams are not. So another issue here is, is that trams, yeah. Apart from in the bigger cities, trams are considered old rolling stock and there's no replacement programs. So the bigger cities do replace them and come up with some quite nice designs, right? But <laughs> but but otherwise, you know, tro trolleybuses and then buses are considered to be modern as well. Yeah, there's a general uh, think, feeling of, of modernity, of new enclosed. Uh, and yeah. trolleybuses buy into that. I, I mean, um, London Transport developed some very sexy looking trolleybuses. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, really nice looking vehicle i mean this one's gorgeous i think this is a really nice looking and, and if you consider what other vehicles were looking like at the time this is a modern looking vehicle you know it's 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 quite something yeah yeah it's peeling it's clean it's got symmetry i mean it probably didn't look that clean in practice in newcastle because it'd be all the coal yeah not the actual coal but the you know the smoke in the air would yeah. probably have, from the factories and the the chimneys would have probably dated it all up but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but but yeah it's you know they're not the lovely clean you know um i believe that at beamish they're they're, they're opening a trolley bus line now Ooh. or soon oh, that's to run that very trolley bus there in the picture i believe oh, so so that's something i look forward to actually Absolutely. but yeah that's, trolley bus, yeah yeah but but so actually there needs to be more academic work on them to be fair because yeah. there is almost none <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. Oh, Paul is saying, um, uh, yeah, the Paul is indeed saying the trolley bus is at Beamish. Yeah, indeed, Paul. We've just you, you're, you're a few seconds behind us. We just said that. Um, but yeah, good. Po yeah. Paul, Paul's absolutely <laughs> on it. Paul Dickon, hello, you're on it tonight. All the facts, fantastic. Um, so trolley buses seen seen as the savior of, of tramways, but um, not necessarily. <laughs> Things don't necessarily go perfectly. So talk, talk, talk about the fact that tro trolley buses somehow seen as a savior by the, the Royal Commission rapidly yeah. fall from grace. Talk, talk a bit about that. Yeah, so the thing is, is that um, they're still not maneuverable enough in the in the eyes of the local authorities or the police. So there's a great. So this picture is from Reading, and it's great because this is why there's like a turning circle. And it has yeah. to have a hole. It's <laughs> um, at, yeah, at, yeah. Actually, at Santoff, you can see, which is the national museum, effectively of trolley buses. You can see them doing, you know, they, they're they're actually like little railways up there, and they they switch them between lines and stuff like this. Um, oh, wow. A lot of systems, I think, had automatic switches, but. Um, to avoid having to kind of manually switch the poles around, this is the best solution. But obviously, it fouls a road junction because that's yeah. that's behind <laughs> that uh, fire hydrant. There, I think it is. You can see that there's basically you know a giveaway and stuff. I think basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so and I came across. I was looking for something completely different. I love this when this happens. I was looking for stuff to do with the 1966 World Cup in the Newcastle Archives, <laughs> and I found in the council minutes. I found. Um, I found there the the sort of the the basically the kind of document about abandoning trolleybuses and why are we abandoning trolleybuses and it it was the same stuff right it was basically they're in the way um, they're not flexible if there has to be a diversion we can't divert them if the emergency vehicles are in you know need to get past they're often in the way and all sorts of excuses for this also they're in the way of redevelopment of course this is the the Brasilia of the North period and the T Dan Smith as well so. You know, and, and, and that wouldn't do as well. So, you know, so, yeah, so basically the same excuses, you know, the, the fixed guideway, the extra cost of having the fixed guideway, all this kind of thing um, is, you know, is this considered to be, you know, well, why don't we just have diesel buses? Yeah, just get rid of all the infrastructure. <laughs> you just have a bus. You just get rid of the infrastructure. Yeah, so, so the same job. You know, yeah. And, 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 and to be fair, at this time, it may be reasonable for councils like Newcastle to think that would be okay because, um they're building one of the interesting things is you know they're building tower blocks right and there's a lot you know, i won't go into that but they're, they're building tower blocks with like six parking spaces so they're yeah. kind of thinking oh yeah most people will still take the bus still take the bus still right. along so, public transport yeah yeah so in a lot of kind of left-wing britain if you like this <laughs> there's still a planning view that people will still use public transport to a large extent at this time well we took the strategic um, view of but, infrastructure it wasn't happening in all municipalities yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, there, there are lots yeah. of examples where there was a strategic view that, that public transport was the way people were going to get around to these large public housing estates. You know, we yeah. had a, a much more strategic view of, of the world, if you like, a bit more of a Swedish view. You know, we go back to, to Dominic Hines' episode where we talked about this attitude of, you know, housing and transport were seen totally as, as, as interlinked systems that you had to consider as, as one, really, certainly in urban areas. Um, yeah, so it's we, not as... Yeah, it's not as far as Sweden, but it's it's a similar mood of thought. Some of those moods of thought, yeah. So so hop forwards to the nineteen sixties, and and if we go back to our tramways, there's was there hope? Question mark. So you gave a couple well, of examples here. So I'll, I'll let you talk through these two. Um, so uh, yeah, talk to us about the nineteen sixties. Well, this is the interesting thing: is that almost as soon as they go, 
Uh, <laughs> there's kind of thoughts to be talked creeping in of, of them coming back. So, <laughs> so, the, so the Manchester case on the left here um, is a brilliant one because um, so <laughs> so so Manchester was looking for, and this is a this is a recurring theme on this very program, right? That yeah. they've never been right. So 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 Man, one of Manchester's great ideas was actually monorail, of course, like everywhere else in the sixties. Yeah. And then they looked at this, and they're like, well, actually, oh, what about what they call here duo rail? I love this euphemism, this ridiculous right? euphemism, duo rail. Well, you mean rail. just just a I regular mean, tram. Just regular rail at, system. What are you on about? Yeah, so, you, this this, this is a Guardian at, article. I'll, I'll just give the headline for the benefit of our, 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 our listening audience. Uh, Manchester is told dual rail better and less expensive. There we are. That's the headline <laughs> by Ben Hickman from the Guardian in 1966. Uh, yeah. yeah. This this Manchester transport officials who are studying different monorail and monobus transit systems have received another detailed proposal. Duo rail. <laughs> <laughs> the sponsors describe it as a light form of electric railway vehicle, but say it is far more flexible and less expensive. Yeah, it's, it's a tram, folks. Yeah, it, it, no, it's a tram. It's it's a tram. Uh, it's remarkable that this is being discussed. But anyway, yeah, there we are. Route of dual rail, which, don't get me wrong, that appears suspiciously similar to a Metrolink route. Suspiciously yeah, similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's basically... You know, again, it's a thick, thick thing. It's yeah, and it's Altrincham Spurry, and it's yeah. So I'd say I, I came across this actually, again by accident. It's like, oh, this is this is great. This is you know. So there's <laughs> Metrolink already yeah. in the Iron Square, and one of the and, the and this is where the picture on the right becomes quite important because that's that, so that's actually um, in Zurich. Mm. So the top of the, the, the zoo station in Zurich, which is, uh, I drop in topically because it's also the tram stop which set blood, doesn't you? I didn't use because it's next to FIFA headquarters. But yeah. the interesting thing about Zurich was is that they came very close to trams. And Switzerland being Switzerland, the city council basically lost referendums about it. Uh, oh, <laughs> and, and, and this kind of forced a complete rethink and and it, it got later incorporated into the kind of the the band 2000 project that the swiss railways had but also in germany around the same period there was a kind of a so germany is quite interesting because it didn't so in germany um there was it wasn't quite the drift to get rid of trams the nazis didn't like them <laughs> seemingly yeah. but neither did they really because in the interesting thing about con the continent, of course, is that local authorities have much more sovereign power, even yes. under a dictatorship. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the interesting things that happened in the 50s was there was a little bit of a renaissance in tramways because it was seen as getting away from Nazi motorization ideas. But then yeah, also at the same time, what also starts to happen in the 60s is that so obviously, you know, Barbara Schmucki does great work here where she showed that in Germany... A similar thing did happen to the UK in which public transport came to be seen as a kind of a safety net. Yes. Okay. And 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 so, you know, and, and then obviously it's a country that has a big motor industry actually and so on. So motorization does become popular in Germany, but there's also disenchantment with it somewhat earlier. Yeah. Okay. And the, the the government there basically put in place what I call a um, an institutional framework. <laughs> to deal with the problem where well, they they top sliced petrol tax right so imagine this that uh, i think i can't remember i think it was 
I think it started at 30%. They moved up to 50% of the petrol tax. So oh, wow. they moved, they kept some of it as road fund, but they moved some of it up and moved it towards the states to and cities to use for public transport improvements. So oh, if only we'd one done of the, that in the UK, good grief, yeah. But one of the great innovations that comes out of that is basically the modern or the modern tramway, the kind of LRV tramway, which is different qualitatively to a traditional tramway in that, the Germans get to grips with the idea quite early that actually you need to separate from the road traffic if possible. Yes. So Karlsruhe is a great case study. Um, many councillors in the UK have gone on fact-finding missions to places like Karlsruhe yeah. uh, <laughs> to, to look at these kind of segregated systems. And that's what inspires ultimately the adoption of more of these systems in the UK and the US, actually, and Australia as well, actually. Yes, this, tra- this um, transition into later, what, what is often termed... Um, LRT or MCS yeah. is these these sort of seg- these more segregated yeah. uh, articulated vehicle sort of systems. Ultimately, it's still trams. It still relies on the same principles. It's offering well, yes, that higher capacity. You get more you get more throughput with fewer vehicles because you have a you know you can carry two three four hundred plus people in a in an individual vehicle. Um, yeah, yeah. Size. Well, yes, no, in the sense that as well. I mean, I love. I, I've loved all the stuff about the, the Rotherham tram trains, which to me seem no great breakthrough, given that surely Metrolink was always a tram train. Yes. So, but yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so, so, so actually, there is a slight qualitative difference to the newer generation, um, although it's not entirely the case. But, but I think that's, yeah, that's one of the important things worth kind of pointing out. The interesting thing is that trams are so integral to Manchester now that people don't realise they ever went away. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's this feeling that there's a continuation there. So if I, if, if we roll on, so we, we remember our history. So yeah. we've, we've talked about this history. You know, 1962, we, tramways were disappearing. 1972, trolleybuses were disappeared, uh, had disappeared, and then we and then we end up then shooting ourselves in the foot and chest and face by then deregulating yeah. our buses. So given all of that, what kind of what is this list of things that go wrong so we've got in fact we have a list because you provided me a list we can go through each of these yep. sort of things and you can talk over them so everything goes wrong in the anglosphere over this period um, and, and this i think is relevant as much for buses as it is for trams and trolley buses so number one is that that, that we've got this challenge of systems being too slow to adapt to, to motorization so i don't know if you want to very briefly yep. kind of talk on this one so that's basically that problem that there's no... So in Germany and on the continent, there was more of a rethink earlier. So, you know, let's have designated platforms. Um, let's give... In Switzerland, certainly, there's kind of let's give trams. So actually, Zurich uh, is probably more of a traditional system, but a modernised traditional system. Yeah. And and there, for example, you give... So, so because one of the great things about Switzerland is that... I don't know if you can still do. You used to be able to go on the Swiss Railways website and print out a map print out sorry a timetable timetable that would give you, you you could go from any tram stop in the country to any tram stop in the country or trolley bus stop or bus stop even with a timetable that gave you like a set list of instances where you could take that tram and you would end up at the other place at that time. it's part of their tact i presume it's part yeah. of their tact so it will still be that, that integrated timetable yeah so i couldn't believe it when i found this this is amazing right but but this means that they need to have things like you know, it settles the issue. They give trams priority yep. at road junctions, right? They, 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 yeah. So they, so none of that thought happens in the UK. Yep. Um, trams in, I think there was a great case that in Glasgow, they resolved it by saying that whenever a tram stopped, 
uh, all the vehicles behind it had to stop as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> so then we have the yeah. next issue. Then is this is an interesting one? Is that we have this this hub and spoke uh, system? Some of these systems that were hub and spoke designs, which was good yeah. for freight, but it was bad for passengers actually getting where they needed to be. So yeah, talk a little, give us walk us through this a bit. So the thing about this is that what you get with early 20th century sort of suburban systems really is well suburbanization right so the thing about suburb so the thing about suburbanization is that it's often the case people see the public transport as a way to get into the city center but nothing else yes yeah and as the city center has declined that means that we've got more car dependent basically so what you have is a hub and spoke system where to get from one part of a city to another you know even if it's like you know half a mile away you often have to go into the town centre and come yeah, back and out if, again. And if you've got out-of-town developments happening, which was happening not that yeah. late in, you know, that was happening reasonably early post-war that we were having sort of fairly substantial out-of-town developments are popping up, that public transport, certainly traditional heavy infrastructure public transport like trams, were not designed to get people to, to, to kind of make those journeys, you know, kind of radial, if you like, or circumferential journeys. They were all about arterial journeys, right? Yeah, so so it's basically very, you know, you, you you can have you know day passes or day riders or whatever, but it's it's ultimately the usability of them is fairly limited. If you have to go into the city centre and and change to come back out again, there's often no circular route. Um, and and it's true. And, and again, this one's definitely as true for buses as it is for for trams. You know, it's it's improving. Yeah. But it's as true for buses. If you've got all the bus network is just a, a load of fractal lines going out from the city centre, then then that's not particularly useful if you want to get across. Um, so this is an interesting one. It's this loss of embeddedness, and we'll touch on embeddedness when we talk about when we're gonna and we're gonna get to it, folks. Um, when we talk about what infrastructure is and what why the importance of of, of extant infrastructure, but this, this loss of embeddedness when buses arrived is yeah. Why did this? Why? why why did this reduce ridership? What went wrong here? Yeah, so embeddedness is the sense of permanence. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not permanent, blatantly. You have that. <laughs> you have a sense of permanence. It's something reliable and it's something that's there. And the, so this is going back to the Skeletrics approach is actually yeah. that the presence of some form of track increases the fear from the public, essentially, that the vehicle will run, that it will arrive. And that it's reliable in some way. And this is this is what's more likely, you know, this is what's called the psychological real effect in a lot of the current literature, mm. essentially. So this is the idea that um, you're more likely to use to use public transport if you have some kind of physical infrastructure that reflects it. Now there are ways you can do it with buses, um, actually, but it's rarely done in this country. So the, the Brazilian city of Curitiba, I think its name is. Um, built what were called bus tubes which were like very distinctive bus stops um, ah, yes. where you prepaid to get on the bus and this is actually to some extent you know this has been quite successful there so you can do it with buses so this you comes in and this touches it. on the brt question doesn't it is, is that yeah. i don't so i don't believe that brt is a often if you've got a system that is brt arguably you should just be going for a tram system because the tram often will be cheaper or as cheap to install but the BR, the idea of BRT, there is some success behind it. There is some merit behind it because it's trying to tap into this embeddedness. You know, you have maybe raised platforms to serving the bus. You have, you know, and the the system, what, what's it called? Glider in Belfast. 
Oh yeah, yeah. It, is, it taps into this. It, it's it's tapping into the logic of a of permanence of embeddedness, as you say. But we but we lost this, didn't we? We lost this. We we got rid of trams. We got rid of trolley buses. There was nothing other than maybe a little stick with the word bus written on the top of it to suggest yeah. that there was anything going to ever arrive. Um, and then that kind of perhaps is connected then to the next one um, as I, I kind of pressing us forwards is deregulation disintegration. This 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 challenge here with. Uh, you know, we got to the point of buses, and the whole thing, the whole idea of a, of an integrated public service starts falling apart, doesn't it? Yeah, basically, you can't even necessarily tell um, what bus goes somewhere at what time, or you know, you basically feel that everybody on a bus knows where it's going and at what time. But as I, you know, it makes it very difficult for our drivers to access. Basically, so yeah. It, yeah, and you don't know how much it'll cost or. You know, for a while they needed to have the right change and all this kind of thing. Yeah, all this sort of lack of all this sort of lack of connectivity. Yeah, and, yeah. and then and then that then in turn fed. It's also a bit of a negative feedback loop at this point because then you've got this attitude of managed decline, right? Yeah, so it's just something that pensioners use. In fact, there was a great. I remember many years ago I went to a seminar um, at IHG where um, there was an old boy from the, the presenter was an old boy from the bus industry who'd made millions basically out of selling Go Ahead Northern oh, uh, or yeah. buying Go Ahead Northern and he, he or the management buyout. And um, so, and he basically, you know, and one of the early things he said was, oh yeah, the, you know, the, the PTEs were using, you know, it was the, the kind of pensioners passes and so on that they had were marks in wealth transfer. Right, that was it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that was yeah. the kind of you know that was it because they would have passes maybe for the unemployed as well as the disabled and so on. There wasn't a universal bus pass system as came later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it was a very much a postcode lottery. But those postcodes that decided to push it, you know, the idea was, oh yeah, that was a you know he's saying, oh yeah, but that was just a marks in wealth transfer and that had to be got rid of. Yeah, good grief. <laughs> It's just um, some old lady getting to the shops. So yeah, I know, right? It's, no, it's wealth transfer. It's bad. Whereas, yeah, here we go. So then, and then again, ultimately, the thing that bottoms this out is is this UK view of transport as a business, not a service. This this is a thread that runs through yeah. British transport history, like writ large, right? So right from turnpikes. <laughs> yeah, turnpikes, canals, railways. There's always this view. So there's a little bit of government regulation in these cases, but not much. And essentially, that's a prevailing. That's the prevailing view always, apart from that period, maybe in the 70s, probably the 70s, actually, maybe the 60s to some extent. But generally speaking, um, there's that attitude that it, it is generally a business um, and not a service. Um, and that's that's kind of permeated it. And that's that kind of underpins a lot of the investment decisions we still see today, I would say, as well. Because yeah, yeah, it's yeah. around, well, is there a business case? Is there a cost-benefit analysis? All the language is about business so, cases, about absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 so kind of, kind of bottoming out this this point, and this, this is interesting because you added this as a bullet point in your kind of um, the rough slides you sent over, is at the same time as all of this, good infrastructure still seems key to mobile shift. So in spite of all this stuff, all this, all this undermining of infrastructure... All yeah. the literature and all the evidence suggests that good infrastructure is is key to modal shift, right? And I suppose yeah, yeah, yeah. we I suppose we want to maybe get into this a bit. So to answer this, we kind of need to think about well, what what is infrastructure? What what kind of can we call infrastructure? And um, we'll start with uh, a slightly more um, how do you describe it? Esoteric description of of the dimensions of infrastructure, yeah. which we'll we'll whiz through these and then we'll focus on what the ones that I think are a little bit more tangible. This is from Star and uh, Ruhlreder uh, from nineteen ninety six, right? 
Um, yes, this is a, an organization studies approach, but it's still a useful kind of, yeah, it's a useful framework. So, so we've got this framework, and they're kind of eight points that 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 that, that, that these these two these two make. Um, so the one we talked about this already: embeddedness, transparency. So yeah, pick pick up on the transparency one. What 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 so kind of are they referring to with transparency? So it's easy to access. It's easy to kind of you know know how you know kind of what the rules are basically. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you know what the rules are. You know how it's used. Um, reach and scope so that's both spatial and temporal so like how far out it reaches from the, the, the you know into the into the into an urban area and also how late and early it runs right as well so what that scope of operation is yeah so the, in the very basic of it you have kind of you know universality um you know you can you can get to it from anywhere if you think of something like the post office or something like that you know you have great reach you have um or, or the phone system yeah. these kinds of networks you have so it's not just about railways or tramways it's about having these understanding networks as a whole and install bases as a whole basically it's similar for yeah, yeah. you know computer you know sort of organization uh, what you call it operating system was for example or you know if you have yeah, more okay. if you have if you have a operating system installed on more computers it's going to have more reach more scope it's going to become more universal it's going to get more embedded as well it feeds itself ah, yeah interesting okay so this one is interesting. So again, this language—the language here is quite esoteric. But but this one yeah. is, is is learned as part of membership. So um, explain this point here. So it's accessible to use. It's kind of you know you know what the rules of the game socially are. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. All of these kinds of things. So we're all kind of socialized, and we all socialized into things. Yeah. So we know when a bus so, turns up. I could go to a totally different city, yeah. but I know generally when a bus turns up, you shuffle onto the bus. You give a thing, whether it's an Oyster card or some pennies or a contactless card, and then I get and I sit down. But we kind of all know that, right? We all are socialized into knowing what a bus is. Okay, yeah, understood. So then, then, then the next kind of point here, and don't worry, the next, the next slide, everyone is is more applied in a way that we can all remember. But this, this is worth understanding because these tie into it. The next one is links with conventions of practice. So, um, so that's basically the idea that you have, yeah. The, that you have a broad idea of what the sort of overall practice in the industry is, or the overall practice around the infrastructure is. Ah, uh, okay. So there's that relationship to the previous one as well. That, that, there yeah, is a, yeah. that, 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 that there is this similar way of, of dealing with it. You know, um, if I want to call someone on a phone, I pick up the thing and put it to my ear and type the numbers on another. Th like these, and that's accepted as being yeah. the system across the board. You know, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, an embodiment of standards is the next one, which I can obviously buy into as a, as a design yeah. engineer. So you have universal kind of standards within that system that means that it's interoperable and all that kind of thing. Yeah. It's together. Then, and, and then the installed base is really important because that's, you know, that's the kind of the very physical sort yeah. of ability. Yeah, the tangibility of it, of it that, that relates back to embeddedness is that you've got this. Materiality, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then that relates, I suppose, is, is to this last point, which is quite an interesting <laughs> one, which is that it becomes visible upon, visible, sorry, upon breakdown. Yeah. So basically, how much you rely on that infrastructure then becomes, you know, they, it becomes visible when something breaks down. So obviously, that's going back to that point about a tram breaking down. It's in the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's obvious. Okay, the system is degraded. That becomes clear to its users. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the downsides of it. Yeah. So if you take this and run with it, this then goes into a kind of I've broken down into more visual representation of I, I think possibly a punchier representation but not not any more or less valid but a punchier representation which I, correct me if I'm wrong this is Mies and it's from more recently yeah. right 
Yeah, so this is a book. Let's go way over around. This is a book that all sort of. Oh, it's a wait a minute. Let's go big face. Transit boosters and all policymakers should read this. All policymakers and transport today should read this book. I mean, the awareness of it is staggeringly low. So my my angle is all wrong. But they... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is. transport, transport for suburbia beyond stuff. the automotive automobile age by Paul Meese. The great thing. So the great thing about you know, but you read this book, it'll change your mind about transport because one of the the great things about it is, is that he basically argues that. You know the density myth is wrong. Interesting. So what you get, what you get in the sort of new urbanism and so on, is this idea: oh, if you increase the density, you know, I know something in that, okay, but that'll support public transport and so on. But it's, but also, you, he's also saying if you make this, the system good enough and accessible enough, then you can have a completely non-dense society, basically that relies on public transport. Ah, interesting. So let's go through these six points because I think they're very neatly connected here. Oh, Simon Kendler saying excellent book. Simon, you're so on it. Yeah. Right. So yeah. these six points, and I'm going to go through each of the six, and I'm not going to dwell on each of them because I think they refer back to some of the things we talked about. But these points, the first one is is visibility. So it's visibility yeah. of the infrastructure, visibility of the system. Um, the next one is simplicity. So I've got a little yeah. thing in the background there, but simplicity, the drumbeat of a of a, a clock face timetable, as one example of simplicity. This the fact that the, it, the, the you don't have over complex. You've got a line, and you've got trams. You. It, it's not every every train doesn't go off to a 20 different places. You have a simplicity of system. That, that, that's clear. Integration. So you have integration between lines and between different systems. This integration is critical to having a, a successful form of, of public transport infrastructure. The next one is affordability. I've got a nice picture of a ticket booth there uh, on Metrolink. Affordability. The system has to be perceived as an acceptable level of cost. That does not necessarily mean free or super cheap. But it's got to be perceived as enough as a justifiable expense to do the thing you want to do, which is generally go from A to B or from A to D or wherever it happens to be that you're going. You have to perceive it as an affordable choice. And the next one is, and catch me on any of these if you if you if you think there's a little more to it, Kev, but I think I'm covering yeah. it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The next one is safety, and I've put a picture of accessibility there with level boarding. But safety, it's also like being in a comfortable environment that that feels safe. You know, you perceive as being a safe environment to to spend time yeah. in stations that feel safe to be in. Um, yeah, you're not going to get mugged there. Yeah, exactly. Basically, yeah, you, you you feel safe, you feel secure. And then the last one, which I've got the big TFW um, uh, sort of T on here. The last one is ownership, and this is an interesting. I want you to pick up on this a bit. So, so Mies suggests that not not explicitly public ownership, but the perception that we all have a buy-in, an institutional buy-in to the system is critical in us in driving modal shift right yeah so he's quite so, he, so in the book he actually looks at he kind of taxonomizes different systems of ownership and obviously he's very against any sort of deregulated system mm. um but ownership's important because it gives you kind of democratic or at least state yes. control over it but it's it's that sense of being able to bring together the different modes and different ways of traveling yeah. It's also important. So, so all of these things are best achieved in some kind of. It doesn't have to be publicly owned necessarily, but some kind of public sector framework. So, again, in Germany, quite often you'll have multiple local operators. Um, so, a different organisation, municipal, might own the trams. DV might own the trains. Yeah. Whatever, but there's an agreed fares structure. Yeah. Usually, it's what's called a tariff union. There's an agreed sort of. First structure in the UK, we seem to be. Or, well, part of the reason that this doesn't exist in the UK is probably that it would fall far of competition. Yeah. 
Yeah. Authority yeah. laws, but that's so that that the so competition regulation might consider it to be um, rather than integration, might consider it to be cooperation or. Yeah, so it's <laughs> yeah. This is it again. Our idea of treating these things not as a service but as a business becomes a problem. And and inherently, if you take away any one of these Jenga blocks, you're eroding the ability of the system yeah. to drive modal shift. Right? You're eroding the desirability of, of people to use the system. Yeah, and 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 you know, you if you're somewhere like you know if you're somewhere like Liverpool, it might be quite desirable to be able to afford to take the ferry for certain journeys on a travel card, as well as being ill as heck. You know the underground, or you know, I'll take the bus. So it kind of, you know, so having that ability to move between them, but having a, a system where the institutional framework of all the modes fits together doesn't have to be state-owned per se, but where it fits together is important. And this is one of the areas where, you know, again, I whenever Labour politicians pop up saying, "Oh, well, nationalise it all, nationalise it all," it's like, okay, but what are you going to do with it? Yeah, 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 exactly. That's care. like, okay, great, you've changed the name on a payslip. Yeah. What do you? What are you materially going to change as a result of that? So, so I don't actually care that you're going to nationalise it because we had nationalised systems before, you know. But um, they basically spent fifty years trying to make a profit in the national framework. Yeah. So, does it matter? So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If so you're going to continue to drum be... them for and, uh, that they have to create a profit, then nationalisation per se isn't. Sorry, I just whacked my microphone, everyone. Uh, nationalisation yeah. per se isn't going to solve anything you're going to have the same level of managed decline um yes so 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 these six are fantastic and again and i think we'll touch on this again but when it comes to the kind of the thesis of the episode of of why people prefer trams to buses it's because buses if you've got particularly if you've got a deregulated system with competing operators you're losing the simplicity you're losing the integration because the ticketing is not coherent um affordability is a real challenge with buses in the uk but also, the, even if you have got all the other things, if you've got publicly owned buses, if you've got, um, you know, clean, safe, well-maintained, well-lit um, bus stops and buses, if they're affordable, if they, they are actually integrated, if you've got that simplicity, the challenge, you're still losing that Jenga block of visibility because you haven't got the fixed infrastructure, right? So that essentially, if you look at this as an equation, if you drop out or, or even kind of apply a, redu a reducing multiplier on any of these Jenga blocks or any of these variables you're going to reduce the desirability of people to, to use that system. So you can apply this to all the different systems within our... Um, so, okay, it's from a different angle, but if you apply these to any of the things in our not-a-metro sorter, you can understand where some of these things drop away and actually you you, you gain some of the ridership and the modal sh uh, shift capabilities of some of the more, if you like, heavy infrastructure systems. So we're going to yeah, swiftly then. look on to these two pictures you, you kind of sent through to kind of make the point, right? To kind of kind of round off this point about buses versus trams. Um, so yeah, what, what what have we got on screen, Kevin? Talk us through these two images. Well, I think the basic question is, you know, what's a more desirable public transport interface here? So, <laughs> yeah. so actually, this picture on the left is quite local to me, um, yeah. but just an example of, you know, this this area here seems to be full of remarkably bad bus stops. Right. <laughs> yeah. so this is so this is a bus stop that's actually on like a traffic triangle that's quite busy. It's next to some form of monument. I'm not actually sure what the monument is, but it's, it's kind of, I think it's a war memorial, but it's kind of, it's it's like, you know, so you're kind of falling over the war memorial. Yeah, you're right? tripping over the war memorial. There's nowhere to stand, and it's on a traffic island, which isn't, yeah, it's this picture you can't quite see, but it's, on, it's an isolated traffic island, so you have to cross the road to get to it. You can't tell. So, you know, one of the good things about the London system of buses is that you can see what bus runs there. 
without reading the timetable in in this area you have to go and look at the timetable and yeah. half the time the timetable's missing or it's been yeah. vandalized yeah it's got water it's just, washed through it and made all the dye run yeah. just, you know there's no digital display or anything it's just completely and actually only one bus an hour passes that spot or two one going each way yeah. sometimes in our area as well they have bus stop both directions so you'll have that wonky pole and then the other side of the road, nothing, and you're nothing. not really sure. Yeah, and, uh, and actually, in a way, yeah. that ties into visibility because if you do have a, we're, this is not. I'm just going to highlight. This is not an anti-bus podcast. We are a big fan, of, and Kevin, I'm sure you get buses are an absolutely critical part of public transport infrastructure. But like, even part of that visibility element of the of the of the previous slide, um, if you have fairly frequent bus service, so a bus service is essentially reasonably useless if it's less frequent than than four or five times an hour. If you've got yeah. that level of frequency. People are seeing it frequently enough that it embeds, even if there's no physical infrastructure, it's, it's embedding that, that visibility element is, you know, the visibility Jenga block, you're applying a multiplier on that variable, right? Yeah, the best advert for a bus is actually a bus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's true. Right, because that's yeah. half the time people don't realise, I mean, half, you know, if it runs every hour, every two hours, half the time people don't realise there's a bus route there. Or, Might as well not be there, yeah. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and the, the other thing is, is that when you start reducing the frequencies, you look at planning a trip, by bus. I mean, we've seen this with trains recently, actually, yes. as well. But yeah. you look at planning a trip and you can't do it, or it's more inconvenient to do it, so you don't do it. And that's and that's generalized journey time. So it's not just yeah. the journey. It's not the pure journey time. That's the yeah. thing that you, it, it's it's how much of your day do you have to sacrifice to to the to the overall journey? That generalized journey time yeah. as the as the transport planning concept is. So then next to it, you've got a rather stark contrast. You've got the you've got a, a nice picture here of um. Of Metrolink, Manchester Metrolink, yeah. with its uh, with its fancy fancy modern trams, looking snazzy. So here we've got, yeah, so we've got the tram. That's one thing, but you know, but we've got a stop that's got, you know, it's got loads of facilities. So you've got more or less level boarding, which is yeah, yeah, yeah. championed by the same person, by the way, who level boarding on Metrolink was championed by a certain David Powell, which we will get on the bloody pod at some point, who championed has championed level boarding on Mersey Rail. So um, yeah, that's, mm. that's that's that one man. So you're going to get that. You're going to get that everywhere, but you've also got, you know, so every Metrolink stop has a ticket machine. It's clear how much you're going to pay to buy a ticket. Um, it feels quite safe. There, okay, not everyone likes surveillance, but you know, there's cameras and there's help points. There's information. Yeah, you've got help points. You've got lighting. Um, it's you know, shelter. there's lighting. It's kind of, you know, it's got a shelter. It feels permanent. It feels yeah. like a. A proper thing it's kind of a mini station it's not quite yeah. as expensive yeah, if as you stand station. so if you go to it's better one of these, than some it's better than some railway stations though. yeah it genuinely <laughs> is if you see one of these in the middle of the night if the lights are on and there's a little thing yeah. and there's an and critically there is a, a cis there's an indicator telling you when the next thing is so you turn up at one of these you can go up and have a look and go oh yeah i can see a thing that tells me when the next tram's going to be along and i'm in a nice shelter i can rest and here it comes even the public outside the tram stop can see so they can decide what if it's a good bet or not, or yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it can be in there. I mean, a great example actually was in is in Switzerland. Um, sometimes inside pubs or coffee shops near tram stops, you'll see indicators. Yeah, the next tram on it. You know. <laughs> oh, nice! <laughs> yeah, was, I love that. That's great. This is absolute embodiment of, of 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 a lack of permanence versus permanence yeah. and what the value of permanence is. And actually, at its simplest, even if you strip back some of the fancy stuff that you've got on Metrolink. The very fact that you have a permanent way contributes to that sense of permanence, right? It contributes to yeah, that sense yeah. of permanence. Yeah. So where I would deviate from the, the overall literature here is that 
so the kind of the, the current transport literature, the kind of at the minute they would sort of say, oh, you know, that, that the, the, they ignore the political factor, which is that the permanence is great, but it doesn't necessarily it may, but it still requires the politicians to support the permanence existing. Yes. Or the, the institutional structure to support the permanence existing. So that's my kind of caveat here is yeah. that you need to have permanence of some form, right? And you could build a bus stop that's almost as good as that, or actually as good as that as well. Yeah. But you need to have political support to keep that being a normative thing, it seems. Yes. And on, um, on, on a similar vein, but flipped, I suppose, is the fact that it, it is, and lots of people pointed out, it's more difficult to get rid of something that has more permanent infrastructure politically mm, not really oh interesting okay so, <laughs> well, yeah, so you look at the history of this and, and the history does not yeah, well, as the whole episode tramways. we've shown that not to be the case haven't we yeah 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 a lot of these tramways have wiped out very quickly and actually a good case is in, in aberdeen i believe now i don't know if this is this is possibly one of these quasi legends not sure if it's quite true but at least the urban legend is that they burned all the trams oh i remember so that because it's where yeah. the current there's there's a, 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 a science center where the tram or it used to be where the tram shed was uh, yeah. And yeah they burned all the trams in there apparently so so, so whether or not that's a true and urban legend the thing is is that they burnt, the the thing is is that there's that it, sometimes a legend is like a symbol and that's sort of saying oh yeah well we can't bring them back yeah. And that's the thing. So they put it beyond use very quickly. And so the idea was is that the decision couldn't be reversed because it was going to take longer to get rid of the track. And of course, in some cases, um, you know, if you uh, dig up a road in Manchester or Sheffield, you'll find the tram lines underneath, you know, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just tarmacked over them to get rid of them quickly in some cases. Philadelphia, there's still some tram lines there that aren't being used. Yeah, I've right? worked on quite Literally. a few. The number 15, Look. shout out to number 15. Uh, hopefully ah, returning, but there are others that are disused. There's the longest, what for a while was the longest urban tramway, which is the it's a north south one. What was it? The number twenty three or something like that that went yeah. north south, uh, and that that's still mostly there. Uh, you can find it, it. It runs parallel to the um, the old Reading line. So if you, there's there's the, the 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 kind of the Philadelphia's version of the High Line, which is about a hundred meters long, uh, kind of connects <laughs> up to that. Um, and yeah, you can you can wander along that. So so we've got we've discussed this. We've got this idea of visibility, simplicity, integration, affordability, safety, ownership. These are the things that embody permanence of of, of, a, of a of a public transport service, and that really embody infrastructure and the, and the value of infrastructure. Um, any thoughts on that? So there we go. We've we've hammered. It. I, I, I was thinking in my head. Well, we can keep this one tight. We've already run to an hour and thirty six. Everyone who's we've still got one hundred and twenty people watching. So everyone who's watching, thanks so much for viewing. Hopefully, it's been an interesting one. I've loved it, Kevin. This as ever, the, these episodes are instructive and fascinating. Um, but yeah, so we've got this kind of any 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 closing thoughts, uh, Kev? I'll bring back your large face here. Well, well, any any kind of, kind of further closing thoughts on, on on that? Anything that you feel like we haven't covered and, and discussed? So, yeah, it's a political thing. I think that's the thing. It's yeah. not, you know, th th that's a, that's my point here is that you might think that it's harder to get rid of these things. And I think it's true because to some extent there is something in a kind of continuous um, institution. So if you yes. look at how hard to abolish the NHS is, for example, yeah, yeah. That, that's a good case, right? But, but, but that's the about the institution point, more than the physical uh, stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, if there's a but if there's a if there's a political will to get rid of something, it will be got rid of. I think this is quite so. This is quite important to realise. I mean, again, you know, the beaching case again. Well, okay, you know, you know, wouldn't reduce it to beaching, but it yeah, kind the, of the, the buzz but, has gone off. That's it. Yeah, yeah. But these railways are closed and they're gone very quickly. Yeah. 
And that's, you know, they, they're, they're often lifted and they're away and there's nothing. A lot of them, you couldn't trace them now. Right. And that's <laughs> yeah. the Grand Central main line is the other buzzer that comes up all the time. It's like, well, you can't build it because it's not there it's, anymore. It's evaporated. It's completely evaporated. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, people have built on it because times have moved on. And, you know, and that's and so the the permanence thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the other side of that is, is you can get rid of roots quickly. And that's been shown in some countries as well. Mm. So that's the upside of it. See, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want and, to get rid of you can you can get rid of you know you, you know have hope because you can get rid of roads that are too big yeah, and, yeah. and wieldy, and that's that's the other side of it. But again, it needs a political will and a political case to be. So, put together. Yeah, so John, yeah, John, John Stone is in the is in the hello John uh, talking about um, digging up tram lines and and the fact that routes and there's the challenge of routes being able to disappear overnight and it, it's perhaps harder to. I suppose that ties into what we're talking about institutionalism because it's okay. You can cut a bus service and it, and it's harder to cut a tram service without anyone noticing. And, and cause you've got the tram infrastructure sitting there collecting dust and being obvious. And that then indicates an institutional decay huh? in a way that cutting a bus service doesn't. So I suppose that isn't, that's less specifically about the infrastructure. It's more, again, ties back into that institutionalism of, of like, it's easier to erode the institution if there's not the permanent. So there's, it's interesting. So there's this kind of circular discussion about the permanence and about how it, whether it can be eroded. But actually, it ties back to that institutionalism, right? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. Oh, we could we could we could talk about this for hours and hours. Let's I tell you, collect up your questions. We'll talk about BRT momentarily. Uh, collect up your questions, but I'll do I'll do some closeout and then we'll 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 get Kev back and we'll, we'll answer a couple more questions. But as ever, this is available in audio only form. Uh, the last one isn't up yet. Sorry about that. It's because there's oh, an apology for last week as well. That for some reason the I uploaded the video and it just refused to upload the HD. So it's in traditional 360p. Last last week's video with um with Tom uh, Tom Haynes um uh I have to get his pronunciation. I keep going into Irish and kind of want to say Doran, but it's uh, Duran. Tom Haynes Duran, I think. Forgive me, Tom. I'm so sorry. Tom, last week. Anyway, I had to cut myself mispronouncing his last name at the end of the last episode. I had to cut it out as well because uh, I keep like deferring to like an Irish pronunciation of Doran. Anyway. Duran, I think it is. Tom Haynes Duran. Anyway, Tom was on, and for some reason, it, it was fine because we didn't have any pictures. Um, but anyway, it was a bit annoying. So it, it's it screwed up my audio thing. So I've, I've I've saved the audio in a different form, and that'll go up with this one um, after the episode. So audio only form. Uh, Patreon.com slash Gareth Dennis for the Patreon to support this happening. PayPal.me slash Gareth Dennis for PayPal, abuse, pennies, and Gareth Dennis.co.uk slash Discord for the Discord, which is where all the chat has been happening in the corner here. Um, yes, uh, good stuff. Hello, uh, all you lovelies in the in the YouTube chat. Um, the next thing to say is transport and its place in history, making the connections. Um, edited by uh, David A. Turner. Um, yes, I, I don't know. That's a f- familiar name. Um, Kev, you're in here. T- t- tell, tell us about this book. Tell, tell us all about it. Well, basically, yeah. So this is, I think, a workshop was held about 2016 or something. But the book came out in 2020. Uh, but, yeah, so basically what I've been talking about is in Chapter 3 in this book. So there's my chapter in one of the anthology books that different academics contribute to. And and, and, yeah, so if you want to read the thing in more detail. Absolutely, go go pick this up. And and, and it's it's a bit weird seeing David A. Turner as Dr. DT's Mm. um, written thing, but it is the same same David Turner. Um, So And and buy it because obviously David will get royalties off it being bought. (laughs) <laughs> everyone gets royalties off it being um, bought so buy this book not, i don't know so how actually, 
the contributors don't generally, but the the author does say, so. and oh, the editor does. Unbelievable! Yeah. So do not buy this because you'll be giving lovely Dr. David Turner some money. I could do. Uh, no, we're, we're, we're teasing, of course. Go buy this. Uh, go read what Kevin uh, said in chapter three. But um, yeah. if, if you if. This is the level of caliber you get if you buy this book. The, the discussion we've had tonight, that caliber on a, on a multiple chapters of subjects. So very much worthwhile. Um, uh, a bit of a talking about this. We've, we're in the period of that. We've just entered the 1960s in, the, in my Archipelago series. So I'm plugging this within a rail now, which I don't often do. But yeah, we've been we've been doing some serious infrastructure construction, but we're in the 60s and we're seeing the decline of trams happening across the island. So this felt interestingly felt like it's a, it's a relevant time because we're seeing this decline of permanent urban uh, kind of transport infrastructure. So if, if you're interested in seeing what the hell I'm talking about, then we are, there's an island of infrastructure being constructed and we're doing it in his, we're doing it with history involved. So uh, go watch that if you're interested. And next week's episode, um, it's going to be a bit of a bonus one. We may or may not have a special guest for this one. Uh, it's not going to be Rishi Sunak, I'm afraid. Uh, Rail Matter, episode 141. It's the big budget meltdown. And what's next for the UK? We're going to go through the budget and work out what in the hell is going on and what's left of this, what the, the shred, the tattered remains of um, of the... Uh, John, you're here. John, if you want to join this episode, you're welcome to drop in. Um, but uh, yeah, we've, we've the tattered remains of the UK. We'll find out what's left. Oh my goodness. Um Oh, let's get Kevin back. So we've got a few questions that popped up, actually. Um, so so Xander Veach is saying, um, I think the single biggest thing to encourage better urban transit would be more powers to local areas. Yep, strong agree with that. More devolution is good. Um, hard agree, yeah. Decentralization, devolution. Chris McKenna is saying the non-permanence of bus routes uh, makes relying on them risky. Absolutely. That's that's kind of fundamentally the reason, isn't it, Kevin? That's, 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 yeah, that's yeah. what the literature points. It's not just us saying that. That's what the literature has confirmed, isn't it? And I think the valuable thing, going back to the local authority point, is local authorities being able to borrow money on their own terms. Yeah. yeah. And things like that. So it's not, it's actually, what's actually really important is not the devolution of powers, which is what you often get, but the devolution of financial yeah. um, fiscal responsibility. I think that's quite important. So that's why you got, and that's why the continent is very different from the UK, where everything's handed down by the king, basically, whereas yeah. the crown, where it's kind of, what, what you need in the UK is more of a system where, okay, it can be still delegated royal power, but but it can be where, you know, it's not created or destroyed as much. Yeah, but I mean, again, in a, a way, back to where we were with, um, you know, the local authorities had lots of funding powers back in yon day of the of the kind of, as you're talking about, actually, the kind of the, what was it? The, 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 the erosion of that, was it 68 where that power was eroded again? The local 70... So the 75, oh, reform, it was yeah, 74, 75 yeah. reforms are really a big turning point in that. Yes. Um, and that's quite well studied, essentially. Um, but yeah, and I'd say the kind of reforms that came in the 90s really kind of really watered yeah, down the, new, the, 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 good old, the good old kind of proper hardcore neoliberal yeah. stuff that happened uh where we really did centralize power into not even it wasn't even centralizing power into westminster it was centralizing power into cabinet office and number 10 yeah, like yeah. that level of, of like oh yeah all the departments don't have any power now either it's all happening absolutely centrally within number 10 and number 11 um, so now they're just glorified bin collectors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, that's the thing. Yeah, to go back to the, I mean, so buses, I would say, I'd actually advocate for quite an aggressive bus policy, if you like, where, you know, I think we should start to get, you know, to build public transport back up. That's where we should be going with it. Start with buses. Yep. Buses, uh, because you can buy a load of buses and deploy them pretty rapidly, right? It's cheap. Once you know what the best routes are, then you can look at trams for it. So, yeah. I, I, but I think, you know, let's, you know, let's just have a, a campaign where we get buses 15 minutes 
frequency on as many routes as possible yeah, in the UK. And I think that will start, that will help. It's all about bussifying Britain. We've got to bussify Britain. Uh, you can quote yeah. us on that. Um, yeah, hard <laughs> agree. Hard agree. Um, so yeah, a couple of other points. Uh, David Shepard asked an interesting question. I'm not sure how well we'll be able to answer it, but it's an interesting question. If we had today the full tram network of the past, what do you Ooh. think that would do for the total percentage of public transport that could use clean electricity? Well, they'd all be able to use it if there was enough clean electricity being generated, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's true. I think that, well, another point here that we haven't really gone into because it's massive and it's difficult to navigate one of the reasons that a lot of local authorities in Britain go for trams is not just that they're profitable or want to be profitable on their own. Another issue, I think Les Hanna, the great Les Hanna, pointed this out, that um, it's the want for having a daytime load on your municipal electricity supplies. Because again, a lot of electricity was local originally. And a lot of, some, a lot of cases, certainly York did and other local authorities do, they, they own their own generating stations originally. And it's a local thing before you get the national grid in the 30s, right? And and one of the issues is that it's complicated. It's, econo- it's a big economic history thing, but basically there's a theory that Britain was slow to come to electricity because gas was so well established early for lighting and other purposes, cooking. So if you live in the south of England, you're more likely to use gas to cook yeah. than you will electricity, for example, right? So such a well established because... gas, coal gas and, 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 and methane network. Uh, yeah. And that's because of that. And so... So one of the things was is that when they brought in electricity, it's like, oh, must get electricity. It was mostly for electrical lighting at first because you don't, nobody had an iPad in 1910. You know? <laughs> so, but it's mostly electrical lighting and maybe an iron and things like that. It's not really used for cooking. And that's actually the electricity boards push that, right? Even fridges are rare until the 50s, 60s, mm. right? So most houses have like a, a like a larder cupboard where the, the air comes in. My grandparents still had it in the 90s, 2000s. So... You can you, so anyway. The point is, is that you needed a daytime load when the lights are not on. Yep. So trams do that, and they give you that. So it's another use for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for the York nerds, by the way, that you know the big chimney next for all the Yorkies. You know the big chimney next to Morrison's. That was York's power station, right? Yeah. And uh, and 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 I live next to a place where there was the first. I think one of York's first national grid connectors, and there's a cottage over there, I can see it, called Grid Cottage. Uh, and it, there's right. now a bulldozed area where it used to be the connection to the national grid. And that uh, and all that power connection, uh, originally the power was coming out from the Morrison's chimney and the generator there to, to this part of York and to other parts of York along the Dermot Valley Light Railway, or actually along the corridor where the Dermot Valley Light Railway didn't necessarily exist yet, because actually it's quite a late piece of rail infrastructure. But then it, the National Grid infrastructure ended up going the other way and then used to go into York along that corridor using similar infrastructure. Um, and that's why they have this connection here. And actually, the main substation is only a little bit further out because it relied on similar routes of infrastructure. So there you go, York nerdery uh, for the electricity <laughs> nerds out there who are interested in such things. Um, it's a neglected area because it doesn't move. It doesn't have as much history about it. So good. Indeed. And I did promise, I did promise, uh, HM Trains, I promise you an answer to this one. Um, Kevin might have a view as well. Um, what are our views on guided busways and, and BRT in relation to this? Um, I, my views are generally, if you've got a thing that calls itself, B, firstly, BRT can get used as a replacement for trams where trams are probably better for all the reasons that I've talked about in my thread on the pad of a fake bus tram situation is actually if you're running a high frequency bus service, the chances are it's going to be cheaper and more efficient to have a tram, right? But for all the reasons Kevin and I have chatted about, 
there is a value in adding permanence to a bus system to drive modal shift. So, uh, Kevin, I, yeah, what are your thoughts on, on, on that? Yeah, it's a hard one. I think I think it tends to be. I mean, if you look at cases where it's been used extensively, I think the Adelaide U-Ban was quite it's quite kind of isolated in Adelaide. So, it, yeah, I don't think they're ever kind of they're often pursued by politicians because they're fancy, but. They never quite. <laughs> they never cut <laughs> in it. Cambridge basically they poured millions into it. And they might as well have built a tramway anyway. Absolutely. And then yeah, it's yeah, been yeah. able to expand it. So I think I think the thing is trams are a proven technology, and you've got the friction thing as well. Yeah. And I yeah I don't know why there's I think I think there's I suppose the other thing about the bus guideway thing is that if you're going to build it, that's all well and good, but you need to make the infrastructure for the buses where they go back to the normal route is good. Yes. Right? And you don't, that doesn't happen. So I'm prepared to bet that in Cambridge, actually, I've been on the bus in Cambridge and it's all right, but I'm prepared to contradict myself a bit there, but um, but I'm prepared to bet that basically, you know, you've got, you're back to your normal wonky stick on a pole kind of stuff. So the thing is, is that it might be fine for your kind of dons going into the science parks, Right, that's a very state Cambridge stereotype. Right? Pretty but it is kind of through the cord through the but, core of Cambridge, you don't have the guided yeah. busway and they're slumming it amongst all the rest of the traffic and it's not very good. It's 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 yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a nice point to round off. I don't want to take this to the two hour mark. Good grief. We're at an hour forty nine. We're gonna finish this barely out over the one hour fifty mark, I promise. Um, probably, Kevin. probably a second that's a good one, yeah. Yeah, oh, there's, there's, there's more to pick out, I think. And we could have chatted about this for another hour at least. But um, Kevin, I've taken up enough of your evening. That's been absolutely fantastic. Honestly, really interesting. Everyone in the chat, your questions, really, really good questions, really good discussion going on. Just an absolute delight. Really, really terrific episode. Really enjoyed that, Kev. So uh, thanks so much. So that it only remains for, for Kev and I to, to say uh, goodnight, everyone. Cheerio. Yeah, goodnight. Bye. Cheerio. <laughs> Cheerio.